0: back welcome to another fantastic episode of Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. My name is Yanni Tokola. Or oh, we got an excellent show for you guys tonight. Uh, we're talking reptile conservation on Christmas Island. Uh, one of our guests today you may know from previous episodes. It's Hamish Nullar, reptile enthusiast, snake catcher, breeder, and also recent UQ Wildlife Science graduate. Now, having finished up his undergrad at the end of 2017, Hamish is on some pretty cool projects lined up. The first being this current trip to Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean, 1500 kilometres northwest of the mainland of Australia. That's around 350 kilometres south of Java, Indonesia. Uh, It's a very unique environment with 135 plant species, 18 of which are endemic. Uh, dense rainforests of pandanus, palm trees, ferns, figs, vines, and aspens grow on the deep soil terraces on the inland. And there's marginal woodlands, grasses, shrublands, coastal mangrove systems. There's also rare and endemic land and seabirds, small mammals, and of course the famous Christmas Island red crab migrations. Um, there's also some very cool reptiles there, including the Christmas Island blue-tailed skink, Cryptoblepharous ageriae, which is unfortunately extinct in the wild. Uh, Hamish is uh, lucky enough to currently uh, be over helping build Swell Lodge, an amazing ecotourism lodge uh, in the national park. You can check them out at swelllodge.com.au. But he's also taking some time to volunteer with the Parks and Wildlife uh, Cryptoblifirus aguerrier breeding program, uh, previously the only known uh, population that we Currently had uh, with another one uh, recently up at Taronga Zoo, I believe. Uh, we're also very lucky to be joined by Mr. Jason Turl, a uh, ranger at Parks Australia. Uh, also helping a little with the blue tail conservation and a very knowledgeable man about Christmas Island ecology in general. You can check him out at Wildside Australia on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual social media outlets. Guys, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us tonight. This is excellent. How are you guys doing? Yeah, good mate. Good mate, how are you? Very, very well. We've, um, we've been having a bit of a sweltering day here in <laughs> the last few days here in Brisbane. Um, how's, how's the weather up there on the island? Nice and tropical? Well, yeah, I mean, the temperature doesn't really change
1: much throughout the year. It's pretty much steady between 26 and 28, uh, although it is very, very humid. I think it's around, what, 95% humidity. On average? Yeah, when you
2: get to the uh, the wet season, which is this time of year in the tropics, um, we get a couple of days of
0: 100%, <laughs> which is good fun. So wow. Well, cool. we just sweat a lot. <laughs> All right, so where are you guys right now? Where are you? Where are we uh, talking to you from?
1: So we're at Jason's place. We're just sitting out the back having a couple of beers. Um, it's a bit earlier here than it is over your way. Um, I think it's about five o'clock, quarter past five over here, so... Sun's still up, sky's blue, it's a nice day.
0: Wonderful, and you guys have a bit of uh, cake and uh, some beverages there waiting for you, ready to go? We do. Of course. I had a very haphazard couple of cupcakes that I threw in the oven just before coming here <laughs> and after volunteering with the skinks today. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, look, uh, in honour of our uh, our discussion tonight, I'm drinking a Blue Island Iced Tea, um, So. Close cousin of the uh, Long Island Iced Tea, but it is uh, you know it's a beautiful sky blue. That being said, it's vodka, gin, light rum, gold tequila, blue curacao, and sour mix. So <laughs> Are it you will gonna podcast. I'm going to try, but it, it might <laughs> get a bit slurry. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I've also got a nice slice of um, salted caramel chocolate slice. So um, I'm ready to roll, man. Yeah. So, guys, look, uh, hopefully it's not all work for you guys. uh, Hamish, um, we see uh, on your uh, Instagram quite a few uh, awesome photos of diving with lionfish, sharks, amazing jellyfish. Um, Or you can see on uh, Hamish's Instagram, at hamwildo, um, even an injured frigate bird that um, you guys recently encountered. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Yeah, the island is full of surprises and lots of weird and wonderful things. So we go snorkeling most mornings where up at sunrise and in the water. Wow. Um, and pretty much, yeah, it's it never fails to amaze
0: me, the things we, we see in the water here. It's always good fun. Yeah, right. And uh, so I saw you swimming with a nice, uh, was it some kind of reef shark at some point as well? Uh, it was a silky shark. Ooh, okay. Yeah, they um pretty common around
1: the island here. We see a fair few of them. Um, yeah, so a few silkies and big GTs at this one spot around the island. And um, yeah, we jumped off the boat, went for a swim, and we're lucky enough to get pretty close to yeah, about five sharks and a dozen or so big
0: trevally. Wow! It was very okay. Fantastic. And Jason, do you get a lot of time off to uh, to get a bit of diving in as well, or um, pretty busy there most of the time? Uh, we definitely keep really busy, but um, you know, we try and finish up about three o'clock in the afternoon.
2: You've got a few hours of light. Uh, it's probably only five minutes into the water, so yeah, I'm I'm a spear fisherman and um I dive a lot and you know, explore caves and uh, spend most of the afternoons doing that sort of thing. It's just that kind of
0: lifestyle here. <laughs> so between um working on uh, endemic unique uh wildlife and their conservation and this uh, amazing national park, you're uh, uh basically uh you know splashing around in the ocean and going exploring.
2: Yeah, that's it. It's an exploring type of
1: island, that's for sure.
0: I mean to that. I have been exploring more in the last
1: month than I have been. I think probably in my whole life. It's like every single day I'm seeing something new and something cool.
0: <laughs> and uh, and that's um, uh, Hamish as well. And that's between you know working on Swell Eco Lodge as well for to help everybody else come out there and do their adventuring as well. Correct? Yeah, that's it. Luckily for me, the
1: um, the couple that are building Swell Lodge, two of my friends, Chris and Jess. Are uh, a very adventure orientated couple, so there is there's really no getting out of it. I'm going adventuring every day, whether I like it or not, because <laughs> that's what they say.
0: So yeah, I'm just and, tagging along. And and you can obviously you know you can you can tell that from their um, their photos on Instagram at Swell Lodge as well. They're um they're definitely into the adventure life out there as well. It looks just like an absolutely fantastic place. Um guys, well let's talk uh, Christmas Island. Um so out there um what uh. 1,500 kilometres northwest of the Australian mainland. Uh, It's about 135 kilometres squared with a central plateau formed uh, from volcanic activity in the late Eocene, I believe, around 35 million years ago. Um, Edged with steep limestone cliffs and terraces and slopes. uh, It's mostly national park, about 60% of the land area, with uh, phosphate mining leases making up around 25%, if uh, I'm not mistaken. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's about it. So the the phosphate mine is actually the reason that any of us are here, basically. I think was it the 1950s or so um, that the phosphate mine was opened. Um, And, yeah, basically that's sort of what kicked off. There are no sort of native humanoids living here. It's all people that came over for the mine, and it's still operating. Um, And that's probably been the primary source of income
0: and jobs for most of the people here. Right, there's a current, what, the current population of what, about 1,800 people or so?
1: Yeah, I think it's a bit more, 2,500 or so. Uh, <clears throat>
2: it was a little bit more just only probably a year or so ago, maybe yeah. two, but it's um, it's dropping down quite dramatically now, and I think there's probably even less than that here now, so probably around 1,500 at the moment. Oh, wow. And it's okay. actually standing on the at the moment.
0: Wow, so it fluctuates a lot. Wow, that's
1: interesting. Yeah, it does. The, the mine has been operating for quite a long time, Um, and they did recently apply for permits to explore more of the island. Um, and then with obviously the hope that that they were going to get more area to mine, but that was not approved. So the mine is, yeah, I mean, people have been saying that it's on its last legs for quite a long time now. Um, and it's, you know, it's still going, but it probably is nearing the end of its, of its life cycle here on Christmas Island.
0: Right. So I guess, uh, the, uh, the future of the island looks uh, a little bit more towards ecotourism, I guess.
1: Yeah, definitely. the um, The primary source of of income has been both the mine and the detention center. Um, obviously, upkeep and staff have provided a lot of jobs, but that also is is sort of on the decline. And they they I mean, it's hard to say exactly when, but in the near, yeah.
0: they're
1: probably gonna they're gonna close at some point. Um, and yeah, I mean, the island its primary resource is just the environment and the animals here. So certainly ecotourism is a definite and hopeful sort of option for the island's uh, future here.
0: Yeah, right. And look, I I mean, as we say, it is a very unique and amazing environment that that you have there. Jason, um, first of all, how long have you been there? And uh, I guess in that time, how much of the island have you actually managed to see? Um, I've been here for just over four years now.
2: And um, I've been working with the national parks the whole time. Um, I've been really lucky, I suppose, getting a lot of friends that are, you know, uh, quite loving exploring and stuff like that as well. And I jumped straight into it when I got here. I think I did. I think I was here on a Saturday and by the Monday I already had four scuba dives under my belt, I think, when I first (laughs) arrived. But um, uh, some people would would argue that uh, I've seen more of the island than most. Probably um, one of the reasons for that is because in 2013, no, 2014, sorry, the end of 2014, myself and two other people were the first to circumnavigate the island on foot. Oh, wow. And uh, we saw a lot of places there that people haven't seen before and, and discovered a few new caves and uh, that was sort of gone down as a little bit of knowing the island, I would say.
0: Wow. So, like, you you really and truly know the island quite, uh, quite intimately then, I guess, uh, uh, despite, I mean circumnavigating it on foot was there some areas that are still sort of impossible or that that can't yet or haven't yet been accessed by people or
2: um nothing's impossible however I think <laughs> the
0: uh, main thing
2: is or any adventure will tell you that but yeah. um i think the main thing is uh, the island being sort of a honeycomb of caves um new ones and old ones are sort of closing and opening all the time so oh, right. even just um you know, in the retrospective of cave formations I myself have seen um, a very very large cave close over and a very very large one open up just in my time here.
0: What just in your four years there?
2: Yeah so and that was only in the space of a couple of months basically uh, there was some sort of tremor which we didn't feel on the uh, surface and when I went back into the cave to check it out for a a third time, that was um it was closed off, and a new area was opened up. And not talking small areas here, I'm talking probably the size of a two-story house.
0: Wow, that's that's incredible. Well, look, as we mentioned, you know um the uh, the island itself is formed from volcanic activity. Is it the um the Christmas Island uh, uh Christmas Island Sea Ridge or the, the, anyway there's a large uh, underwater volcanic ridge basically that Christmas Island is basically just the tip of so there's a whole lot of volcanic activity underneath you
2: yeah it's um it definitely um there's a lot of fun in the water as I say, we spend a lot of time in the water because the uh the drop-off here that goes into stupidly deep water you go 100 meters offshore and you can be in kilometers deep water just
1: by snorkeling off the shore I can vouch for that I've I've been <laughs> swimming like- you, you get like 40 metres off and then suddenly you look down and it's just, there's just a vertical wall below you and you just can't see the bottom at all.
0: Wow. It's so pretty...
1: You're,
0: you're kind of over the abyss pretty quickly. Yeah, well, definitely. And
2: it's great fun and that's what um, that's what brings in a lot of cool creatures as well. I mean, you can, not many places in the world where you can just sort of snorkel off the beach very closely and swim with manta rays and whale sharks and marlin and sailfish and different pelagic sharks and all that sort of stuff.
0: Right, so obviously it's not just the terrestrial fauna that um, is, uh, you know, of interest around the island. There's, you know, all that amazing marine diversity, particularly, I guess, with all those um, volcanic seamounts and things underneath the ocean providing structure and habitat.
1: Yeah, there's some very, very cool marine life here. Um, I mean, apart from the the reef fish, which are obviously spectacular um yeah the, probably some notable ones are obviously the manta rays and the whale sharks they both come in and christmas island is quite well known for the whale sharks at this time of year or that sort of we're just getting to the end of the season now um but also things like sunfish um stuff like that we have one sort of resident tiger shark that cruises around uh, and a lot of other sharks as well yeah
0: oh that's awesome wow that's uh it's great to hear that, that you guys are getting to have so much time in the sea i'm 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 always super jealous of that, guys, um uh, I guess Hamish, I wanted to ask, um since you're a bit newer to the island, can you tell us your first impressions of what it was like uh arriving there?
1: yeah, um yeah, so so I've been here for oh, a bit over three weeks now, um, and sort of part of it feels like I've just arrived, and the other part feels like I've been here forever. Um, the first few days were were interesting just sort of trying to come to grips with what the island was and where everything was. Um, the majority of the island is sort of just surrounded by sheer Mm -hmm. cliffs. There's not a lot of beaches and the few that are pretty, they're very, very narrow, uh, sort of large coral rather than sand.
0: Right. So it rises up out of the ocean pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. It's almost got a Jurassic Park kind of feel. Like it's very, (laughs) very thick and raw and yeah, you're you're really just out in the middle of the ocean. Um, not to mention that the, uh, the wildlife here is so unique and often quite bizarre, that it really, um, yeah, you just kind of, you just get this sense of th- you're just in a completely different world out here. You're, you're so isolated from everything else. Um, it's, it's a pretty special place and I've talked to a lot of people and I've felt the same way from the first few days that you just kind of come here and you, I don't know, something special about it. Like you just, you kind of just feel at home here. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's a really interesting place. I, I can't, Think of many places that I felt more comfortable as quickly as I did here. You really just kind of slot into island life. It's very cruisy. There's not a lot of phone reception or internet, which is awesome. You
0: kind of just settle this really nice lifestyle of island life. Yeah, right. So you, you, your your internal clock switched onto island time pretty quickly. By the sound absolutely. of it,
1: absolutely. It didn't take long at all. I think it was a day or two. So I'll. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving. I've only got another week in a bit here, but. I will definitely be back. There's no doubt about that.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Oh, and I, I guess we're hearing the sounds of chicken coop construction in the background.
1: Yeah, we've got um, our navy <laughs> building.
0: Hey,
1: just ignore that.
0: That's that's all right. Such such is life when you're um, you know, Skyping in for to a wildlife podcast from a remote island in the in the middle of the ocean. Um, Jason, uh, uh, I guess um, you know, with Hamish being a, a you know, getting getting used to life on the island, um can you tell us a bit about, you know, having been there for so long, what the environment is like and what life on the island uh, is like day to day?
2: Well, the environment is, is really, really different to really anywhere, like in Australia especially, because um, most people have heard of the, uh, the red crab migration, the great red crab migration. And um, that's basically what shapes the environment here. So when you walk through the forest, you don't get sort of the lower understory that most people are used to when they walk through a tropical rainforest, whether it be sort of in North Queensland or places like that. Um, It's very clear that the ground is just dirt with with crab burrows and um, they sort of clean it all up and and that's the sort of, um,
0: you know, ecology
2: that we have here. But... um, when you go for a bushwalk, you, you love it because it's just easy to walk through the forest here in that sense, as long as you can avoid the, the rocks and the pinnacles. So that's definitely,
1: that's definitely <laughs> right. that, was, that was definitely one of the first things I noticed here as soon as I went into the rainforest, is you go into these healthy areas and it is just, there's no leaf litter anywhere. It's, it's big trees, roots, and just clean soil. There is absolutely...
0: Yeah, that's what I heard. It looks like it's been raked and uh, and very well uh, maintained like somebody's uh, kind of personal garden because you've got these uh, v- well not just the uh, the red crabs but uh, you know a couple of other species of crabs running around being the main like detritivores and leaf eaters doing and also doing a lot of really important uh, soil turnover.
1: So the yeah, there's the red crabs, blue crabs and the robber crabs are sort of the
0: primary three
1: large crabs that you will see running around the forest floor, the red and the blues are are pretty similar in shape and size, apart from the colour, obviously. Uh, and then you've got rubber crabs, which are quite large, um, but they will also eat other things. So they'll, if you find a, a dead red or a blue crab that might have been squished by a passing car, the robbers will often clean them up. And they nest up quite high in the trees, and the young abbot's boobies, if they fall out of the nest, um, the rubber crabs will even come and take those, so... They um the rubber crabs definitely they,
0: they they'll like, take they'll take Abbott's boobies. They will,
1: yeah. The chicks once they fall down, if they can't get back up to the nest, which they often can't due to the dense canopy. Yeah, the rubber crabs will even come and take those. So between those three species the whole place is kept pretty clean. And then there's another seventeen species on top of that, but a lot of them are much smaller, often in the ocean,
0: other places like that. Yeah, right, littoral crabs and rock-dwelling crabs and things like that. Okay, but well, look, I guess we should, um, you know, uh, talk about some of the uh, endemic species under threat. Um, I mean, uh, that's what we're here to talk about in the end. Um, so, look, uh, Christmas Island, uh, home to some really, really cool species such as the Christmas Island hawk owl, Christmas Island shrew, and as we were talking about, the famous uh, Christmas Island red, red crab, uh, Geocardia natalis, uh, which used to be up in uh, population numbers of around over 43 million um, around uh, what, some 15 million of them were killed by a yellow crazy ant at some point um, uh, recently, I believe it sort of um,
2: comes down to, um, sorry to sorry to put in there it sort of comes down to um, the yellow crazy ants taking a lot of the, uh, the baby crabs and the return of the crabs as well as forming their, their ant nests, their colonies, their super colonies in amongst nice crab areas and, and nice uh, pristine forest and um, that's what's taking down the numbers. So they're kind of thinking at the
0: moment that it's around the 45 million mark. Wow. Jesus. So then uh, hopefully, um, you know, uh, they're going to be getting some kind of handle on those crazy ants at some point because obviously there's some risks to a lot of the other species there apparently, um, from what I understand anyway. There's um, the risk to a lot. Of, yeah, most of the larger species, the crazy ants have managed to push out,
1: um, but we can, yeah, I think we'll definitely go over that a bit later in the podcast because Jason uh, actually happens to be his main jobs for parks at the moment he is dealing with uh, crazy ants and some of the potential ways that we can try to control their population and their spread. So it'll be uh, a worthwhile topic to say for some
0: point. Oh, no, we'll definitely be uh, discussing that. That sounds fantastic. Um, but for now, I guess I just want to talk, uh, obviously, as I always do, uh, reptiles which uh, there's some pretty cool uh, endemic uh, uh, and um, threatened reptiles on, uh, on the island, such as the Christmas Island Blind Snake, Renfro Tiflox exocetii, which is uh, vulnerable, Lister's Gecko, Lepidactylus Listeri, and uh, the aforementioned uh, Christmas Island Blue-Tailed Skink, which is extinct in the wild. Now, there's also the uh, Christmas Island Forest Skink, which was listed as extinct in 2017 um, with the last individual gump uh, having died in twenty fourteen, so um, uh, are, are we expecting to see some more extinctions on, on the way? I hope not. No, we're hoping not. That's for sure. <laughs> not, not we can do anything about it. It was a very sad day when uh, when we lost poor Gump. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you? Oh, oh, wow. That was only four years ago. You would have. Uh, I was
2: almost here been around for that. I was oh was for that. I was. Um, I was actually one of the last people to um, to get a nice photo of poor little Gump before she passed. A couple of weeks after.
0: Oh man, that's uh, that's heartbreaking. Mm. So um, yeah, when um, when
1: they did the initial sort of feasibility studies and went out to capture uh, specimens for captive breeding back in two thousand or late two thousand and nine, um, four of the forest skinks were found, and unfortunately, all four were female. So
0: yeah, they, so they couldn't get a, a breeding program going with uh, with all females, obviously. No, that so even even, even Gump was uh, was a, a young lady. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Uh well,
2: I think one or two may have came in uh with eggs, but uh they they weren't um viable, unfortunately.
0: Right. And in that um Emoya genus uh there's also the coastal skink uh as well, which um is uh you know exists on other islands but uh is extinct from Christmas Island. Is that correct?
2: That's correct, yeah. Unfortunately again,
0: it's um it's one of those ones that sort of um yeah, slips under the radar a little bit
2: with our breeding programs with the blue tails and the listers, Gecko. Um but yeah, that unfortunately,
0: that's another one that's um that's fallen. Yeah right. Um, wow. Um, and uh, tough stuff. A lot of this is, uh, you know, as we mentioned, due to introduced species, um, or we suspect is due to introduced species on Christmas Island, such as feral cats um, and the Asian wolf snake, Lycodon capucinus. Uh The Brahminy blind snake is also there, Ramphotyphlus brahminus, which is basically everywhere in the world.
1: Let's <laughs> <The sea.
0: laughs> see. Like, yeah. Yeah, the rabbit, the uh, yeah the little flower pot snake that just gets moved around in soil. Um, the giant centipede, uh, Solenopendra subspinipes, uh, and the yellow crazy ant, um, as we mentioned, uh, Anaplepus crusolepes. Um I understand there's also two invasive gecko species. Is that correct? There is, yeah. So there's the um, Asian house gecko, which is pretty common back on the mainland in Australia.
1: Uh, which over here they actually call the barking gecko. Uh, and then there's another introduced species, which over here is known as the Asian house gecko, uh, but it's a different one to what we have back on the mainland.
0: Okay. Um, oh, that's not the uh, the other uh, house gecko that's recently been established north of Sydney, is it? Um, oh, god. Uh, I forget I think species name.
1: Maybe it is. Maybe both of them are on the mainland now.
0: I'm not too sure. A hemidact, so is it hemidactylus or is it? um yeah it's 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 a hemidactylus. uh i just don't remember the um for the life of me i don't remember the uh species name anyway moving on um wow that's uh that's pretty tough stuff there so there's both competition and predators um for a lot of these animals to deal with so yeah for example with the um with the blue-tailed skinks um you know there's there's other lizards on the island and there's the asian wolf snake which is a Fairly powerful predator of uh, of small lizards, as I understand. And then you've got the uh, yellow crazy ant. Um, that's uh, that's a lot to deal with. The uh, the centipede is actually
1: probably one of the main threats to the the skinks and geckos. Uh, yeah, the centipede is actually like probably the main the main threat, according to uh, some of the park guys that I was speaking to today. Um, so yeah, they are in absolute plague proportions here. They were, recently um, so they've been setting up some soft release sites uh, for the breeding program for the blue-tailed skinks. There was one area with a perimeter of 250 meters, so this is not a large area. And from that area, they removed 400 centipedes. What? Just to give you an idea of how many are here, so you start to look at that over. Four the,
0: 400 giant centipedes.
1: 400 giant centipedes from a 250. An area with a 250 meter perimeter, and that was
0: just um, mostly doing sort of nocturnal checks and uh, catching by hand. Uh, so that was we had a few drop traps. So that, that was that was by active searching, not by like setting up some kind of centipede pitfall. We had a few pitfalls in there, but they they weren't ex- as successful as some
2: pitfalls should be because um, it was difficult terrain to sort of uh, put them in. But um, we got a, quite a few in that. But um, yeah, it was a lot of active searching was was um, where we got big numbers from.
0: Wow, feet on the ground, head torches on, looking for centipedes to help uh, protect the uh, local lizard population.
2: Yeah, plus we also wanted to get um, the ideas of the ones trying to get into the soft release site, so we'd constantly do uh, perimeter checks before the night search, or just before the night search, and uh, you'd have the wolf snakes and the the centipedes pushing up against the the fence a lot of the time there.
0: Yeah, wow. Are are, are the wolf snakes in in big numbers there as well, or, or nothing compared to the centipede? They're nothing compared to a centipede, probably because of the, um, the breeding cycle. But um, the hard thing
2: was, for, um, especially for park staff and any sort of researcher, was to come over and sort of track how centipedes have, have covered the island. Um, Whether there's is the wool snake, we could kind of see as they spread to the furthest part of the island, we saw the d- extinction of the reptiles kind of follow that trend.
0: Right. Okay. So you can pretty directly kind of correlate it when, they're, when you're seeing that. Front it's beautiful data because i mean you're talking before even before
2: the 90s i suppose the people already came here um on very very short stints trying to, to name species and to describe and and it didn't really um sort of come out as, as as good as um you know a phd would these days
0: right all right well and what about anapolipas gracilipes the um the yellow crazy ant um what kind of impact are they having on local reptiles as, as far as we know well, it's <laughs> a tough one because, um, I mean, most reptile lovers out there would
2: sort of know if you find ants, you're not going to find reptiles. It's usually the... A, a small rule of thumb, but and um,
1: these ants spray acid, so <laughs> that <laughs> particularly applies here.
2: They spray formic acid, and um, and they're arboreal and they, they'll nest pretty much anywhere. But they create these uh super colonies with multiple queens, and it's basically if you sort of stand there for 10 seconds, you'll have ants up to your neck pretty much, um, very, very fast. Wow. Um, but the main thing that ants have done here is they destroy everything but because they just destroy like i said before the um the red crabs and the well, the land crabs here sort of shape the ecosystem when they wipe them out they change the entire ecosystem all the way up to the Abbott's booby which nests in a 50 to um 80 meter tree um they those trees are not going to grow when you haven't got the crabs there clearing the, the forest floor so the answer basically destroy that
0: whole sort of habitat side of it as well by destroying that keystone species for the uh forest systems exactly and creating that domino effect for pretty
2: much all the species on the island um you can almost link everything back to the to the yellow crazy ants um they they
0: are classified as the um the biggest priority
2: here at, at the moment
0: wow okay and so what kind of uh, control measures are you guys uh uh at least attempting I uh at the moment well it's very exciting there's been um over a decade of
2: research got into a biological control and um uh, so what we've done, probably not many people have actually heard of this outside the scientific world, but um, it'll be, I think, one of the first places that we have a biological control for a native environment um, on an entire island, especially at 135 square kilometres. It's quite a large project. But um, we introduced the, um, the agent uh, just over a year ago now. I think it was um, January last year. And it's a micro wasp. And what it does is it attacks the food source of the ant and, and it kills that by laying its eggs in it. So it's indirectly having an effect to stop these super colonies uh, getting created by the ants. And they feed on uh, a, lack, a lacking scale, which um, excretes a, a sugary dew. And the ants sort of harvest that and farm it. And they get hepped up and make these super colonies out of that by, by farming this. So we're indirectly attacking their food source, and uh, hopefully getting the numbers down to a, a manageable level where the crabs can move through without being killed.
1: And it's it's sort of important to, to understand that for these ants to go from a colony to a super colony, they need huge amounts of sugar. Um, so by them so by them farming uh, these hard scale insects and creating sort of more more sugar than would naturally be occurring in the environment, they're able to. Basically, engineer their own food source so that they can create a super colony themselves. So, without that ant, that excess sugar that they're creating, um, they basically go from a super colony back down to just a normal colony of ants. And then, so that seems to be one of the best ways of controlling, not not eradicating them. That's probably impossible at this point, but certainly controlling their species um, down to a more manageable level. That seems
0: to be the most successful method so far. Wow, that's fascinating. So the scale bug sugar uh, extract. So there's a, there's a lot of um, insects that'll you know uh, suck on plants and produce kind of a sugary excretion that is used by some other kind of commensal or you know, uh, you know partnering insect. Um, uh, so you're using the wasps uh, to attack, attack them now. Are the wasps parasitoids of these things, or are they actually directly predating on them? No, they they're a parasitoid. And, um, we do have, uh, other
2: scale insects, um, lacking scales and, and, and other parasitoid wasps as well. Um, there's plenty of them on the island. It's very, very small. I suppose when, um, we tell people that we're introducing a wasp, it, it sort of gets people a little bit up in arms. But, um, this, uh, this micro wasp fits in the zero of a 20 cent piece. If that sort of gives you a bit of scale size.
1: Pun, pun. <laughs>
0: Yeah, okay, so a couple of millimetres, basically. Mm, yeah, yeah that's, All right.
1: there is two um, types of scale insects here. There's the hard and the soft. So the, the wasp that's being introduced attacks the hard scale. Um, there is a soft scale as well, and there is a native wasp that will parasitoid on the uh, soft scale. Um, the, the native wasp is not at the moment in anywhere near high enough levels to keep the scale... Insects under control. If the ants did happen to switch, so that may be something that can be looked at in the future. Um, okay. So
0: you don't you don't want to leave them with a potential food resource to keep going. Um, yeah, super colony on.
1: There's a potential second resource for them there, um, but I'm sure at some point we can sort of look into. Well, I don't know. Is there any, already research being done on that as well? There's a little
2: bit done. Um, I myself have um, personally gone out and found this wasp and identified it, and also known the uh, name species that it breeds on. So um, there's plenty to, to do with that. Unfortunately, it's probably about 1.5 mil compared to two millimeters. It's um it's <laughs> it's smaller. <laughs> Even smaller. <laughs> so um, the hardest thing about about my sort of work with that is um when we're, when we're trying to release this wasp and we have, like I said, we, we've released it a year ago now, just over a year ago and, um, trying to monitor these things and see the effect as well as when we're breeding them up, trying to separate males and females is not, a, not an easy thing for such a small animal.
0: Yeah, I no, that, that's completely understandable. <laughs> I'm, I'm much more used to dealing with animals that I can quite easily hold in my hand at some stage. Um. All right, guys, look, uh, aside from uh, the uh, introduced species, which obviously, the um, you know, some massive issues there, um, ha- how significant issues are habitat loss and degradation? I mean, from uh, the mining stuff and, um, and uh, well, I mean, just habitat loss and degradation in general. Is it a significant risk as well to a lot of these species? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I guess mining at any point is going to have – Uh, some detrimental effects to the native sort of habitat. Um, Luckily here on Christmas Island, like there is still a huge amount of landmass that is national park and is completely protected. Um, And as I sort of mentioned before, the mine did uh, sort of put in an application for further um, sort of...
2: Exploratory mining.
1: Exploratory mining, yeah. So the the way that I think that they were hoping that would work is that if they go out and explore the area... Uh, then it's no longer considered untouched, and therefore they can apply for more permits to mine that area but because that mining uh, application was denied, um, that seems to have hopefully sort of sealed the fate of the, the mine expanding any further than it
0: currently has right so more more than likely some more some more ecotourism and and stuff on the way. And look, uh, I you know, I hate to play devil's advocate uh, here, but um, I guess what about the risks of uh, you know ecotourism? Uh, how how are they being managed on the island for like a growing ecotourism industry and uh, the potential impacts of bringing on more people? At the moment, there there isn't
1: really much of an industry for ecotourism at all. Um, at the moment, we have uh, scuba diving here, which is primarily catering to German tourists. They seem to be very fond of the scuba diving over here, um, and it, there's only really sort of one or two companies that offer any scuba diving. There's not a lot in terms of accommodation. There's very little in terms of um, sort of guided walks or anything like that. So at the moment, the ecotourism side is very, very much in its infancy. Um, so the the first real, um, I guess, deliberate eco-tourism that is designed to be on land is well lodged, which is the reason I'm here. Uh, And basically the way that we're trying to manage it is by being very selective about how we offer the island to tourists. So you could, you you can look sort of not too far north, up in Indonesia and Bali, where you've got a lot of tourism which caters to enormous numbers of people, Um, and there's very sort of party culture, that is tourism. We're not looking for that down here. Basically, the island is like a very small, very delicate ecosystem. We need to be extremely careful about how we market and sell the island uh, to sort of an ecotourism population. So basically, we're trying to look for tourism that is very high quality. So you're offering people a really unique experience, giving them access to animals and environments that they don't get to see anywhere else um and basically they will be like most tourists will come in small numbers but it, it'll be
0: very high quality and obviously at a higher price right so going quality over quantity to try to minimize the impacts and also you know so people get a better experience out of the island
1: yeah exactly so and you know because it
0: is it's not like the the island is
1: covered in casinos and bars and pubs and that kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, I think at the moment it's it's almost like a blank slate for tourism which is kind of exciting. Um, a lot of the the endemic species although some are extinct, a lot of the species here are still very intact. I literally walk in front of our car to push crabs off the road like there is no shortage of awesome awesome animals that you can see here. So I feel like, yeah, it's really a blank slate for ecotourism, and it means that we can kind of start from a really good positive point rather than having to sort of fix other problems first. We can we can really just start setting up really, really good high-quality tourism um, and also hopefully getting the, the image of the island back on track a bit because obviously the detention centre had a bit of a negative impact on the... I don't know. I guess.
0: Well, on the tourism uh, aspect of things, for sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: Don't know much about the island, but they have seen about the detention center on
0: the news. So hopefully, hey Mitch, can, can you can you repeat that last bit?
1: Yeah. So um, sorry, there's a chicken going in the background. I don't know if that's what it was. Anyway.
0: No, no, no. It's just cutting out.
1: Yeah. So basically, um, there's no sort of casinos and bars. So we've kind of got an open open option to start some really good quality tourism here. Um, there's a lot of endemic species that are very cool to see. Um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of exciting times to, to be able to start ecotourism from a, a fresh, clean slate.
0: Yeah, all right, dude. Very, very, very cool stuff. Um, I, I, guys, I guess we should uh, move on to uh, blue-tailed skinks. It's what we're here to talk about in the end. Um, so firstly, guys, um, I guess, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Cryptoblifiris, a um, and uh, what do they look like, and where do you find them on the island? So the the oh where did where did you island? I was going to
1: say yeah, uh, <laughs> at the moment nowhere except for um, a captive breeding colony here. So they're the a small skink, I think, sort of adult size, maybe sixty to seventy millimeters from uh, head to tail tip. Uh, they're they're sort of like a, a greyish sort of patterned color from the head to the base of the tail. And then, as the name suggests, from the tail of the cloaca onwards, is an absolutely like iridescent blue. It's almost hard to to fathom when you see these young skinks. The blue is a lot brighter in the young skinks when they first hatch, and it does it does get a bit duller as they get older. But it's it's a pretty impressive animal to see. It is quite beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's kind of like a really stunning azure, turquoisey kind. of... It's really hard to describe, kind of exactly what kind of blue it is on some of them particularly on some of the adults i mean beautiful things look for those of you on the east coast um there's uh, a couple of species of cryptoblepharous uh, you know the same genus that the blue tail is in um so uh pulcher and vegatus, uh which are commonly called fence skinks um because you'll see them on, you know, uh, upward standing fence posts with small cracks in them and they can just slip right into a tiny crevice, just in a, in a cracked, uh, telegro- t- telephone pylon or something like that. Um, so they're very sort of dorso ventrally compressed, very kind of flattened skinks, but also very small. Um, often with, the uh, you know, I, I think the has like two white lines along the, along the back. Um, Anyway, so imagine that, but with an amazing blue tail. <laughs> um, is, that, is that pretty much it? Pretty much. Like, it's almost metallic. It's, it's impressive. And luckily, we have some photos that we
1: can upload with this podcast for everyone to have a look at so they can...
0: Oh, I'm so looking scene. forward to seeing those. Uh, I'm very, very happy to see those. Thank you guys again. But... Uh, uh, yeah'm um, uh, I just can't believe some of the colors that they um, they end up having uh, especially uh, you know as you mentioned you know, might, might be a bit more vibrant in some of the juveniles but even the adults are absolutely stunning. Oh yeah no there's there's no point in these lizards lives when they don't look very cool yeah cool awesome awesome so anyway um, on to the uh, the lizards themselves in about the 1990s scientists noticed populations declining. Um, fairly rapidly, too. By about 2009, there was just one uh, one site on the island where they were still found. Uh, up until that, they were previously abundant, as I understand. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it seems like they were pretty abundant up until that point.
0: Yeah, that? yeah they were. Um, people
2: uh, remember who grew up on the island remember them in their backyards back in the day. It was um, almost as common as, um, as the garden skink, which we do have here as an introduced species as well, a, a type of garden skink. But, um, yeah, and the last place they were found was on the, if you ever see a photo of Christmas Island, it's shaped like a dog, and the, the back leg of the dog is the, the furthest point, and that was the last place that they, they were captured and they were seen.
0: No, they got pushed right out to the corner and then gone.
2: That's it. It was basically, the last place they were seen was almost the furthest from the main point in town that you can get.
0: Yeah, wow. Well. Wow. That's uh, wow. That sucks. So, look. Um, my understanding, uh, as we went through it, the I, uh, uh, I, I, I thought the wolf snake and the yellow crazy ant were um, the most significant threats. But uh, obviously, the giant centipede is uh, is quite a massive threat. Is it? Is it all of these things kind of combined together that's causing so much pressure?
2: Yeah, that's the, that's generally the, the the sense that everyone has. We all we all sort of think that it's all it's always a combination, especially when they've all come sort of in those sort of times when we have um very little um you know conservation to to sort of follow the species and that back in those days um so that's what we not a lot of monitoring and that kind of stuff. yeah and also national parks wasn't wasn't really going here um for a long period of time as well we had we had a uh, sort of natural custodian um i think it might have been in the 70s or something like that but um, national parks or 60s 70s i think it might have been yeah and national parks can come along for a little while so um and then uh, you could imagine um, trying to establish national parks in an area that was basically, you know, discovered for mining is is um, kind of... A bit of a challenge. Yeah, it would have been a bit of a challenge for the poor old <laughs> back in the day, I think.
0: Yeah, to say the least, to say the least. I mean, with, there's some other vested interests there that um, obviously might make a little bit more money than a, a, a national park on a remote island with um, without a lot of established tourism.
2: <laughs> Indeed.
0: All right, well... So onto the uh, breeding program then, I guess. Um, so as of 2009, um, when they were down to that um, single site, um, I believe Parks Australia collect, collected um, and collect me. Uh, correct me here. If, collect me. <laughs> correct me here if I'm wrong. Um, uh, 64 blue-tailed skinks, 43 listers geckos, and three forest skinks. Um, but as we mentioned, all those uh, forest skinks ended up being um, females, including uh, including Gump. That's the Emoia uh, nativitatis. Um, and there's currently over 1,000 blue-tailed and 900 Lister skinks as of last year, I believe. Um, is that all correct? How's, uh, how's that sound? Yeah, so,
1: yeah, basically the 2008 there was a feasibility study uh, done on the, the skinks to decide whether or not they could be bred in captivity successfully. And Lister's gecko, gecko at that point was cons- like they were thought it was extinct. Um, so during, um, 2009, that feasibility study was approved and the program was approved. Uh, late 2009, 2010, they went out and started collecting, uh, from the wild. So I think those, those numbers might've been at some point, but the total, total number collected from the wild was 86 blue tail skinks, 56
0: listers, geckos, and the four female forest skinks. Um, right. Okay. Eighty-six, fifty-six, and four, rather than my sixty-four, forty-three, and three. Yeah, oh, this, this, this is not too
1: all bad. were <laughs> collected over you know it was, it was over a period of time uh,
0: throughout. Okay, so that's the fi- that's the final um, final collection count final for the breeding. Yeah, process. and that
1: was done from late two thousand and nine and all through two thousand and ten. So it was it was quite a long process to collect those animals. Uh, there was still searches going on.
2: Uh, uh, even my first year here, in
0: the start of 2014, we were still uh, just sort of doing searches just in case. So there was still- and trying to get as much genetic diversity into those breeding populations as possible. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's
2: it. We, obviously, we, there wasn't any scene for a few years, but there was still the um, the protocol to go out and because um, we need to make sure. And uh, spend a few nights out there. Um, the park staff uh, searching for the couple of years after that as well.
0: Right, right. Is is genetic diversity in the in the breeding populations being uh, pretty closely monitored, or it is?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so basically, at so at this point of collection, um, Perth well during the feasibility study, I guess Perth Zoo was quite involved um, in the research, and they were obviously wanting to uh, have a sort of security population there as well. Um, but eventually, the Zoo actually got the approval to have the security uh, population established there. So half of the animals, so half of that eighty-six, half of the fifty-six, were sent to Taronga uh, for a backup breeding population. Um, and so they they still have those breeding populations there now.
0: Wow! So Taronga Zoo currently has blue-tailed skinks, yeah, and, from Christmas Island. Oh, so the, <laughs> wow! So there's a second uh, a second backup, I guess, security population.
1: Yeah, exactly. So
0: there is two captive pop- populations: one here on
1: Christmas Island and one at Taronga Zoo. Um, the end goal is sort of to return those uh, individuals and the successive generations that have been bred at Taronga back here to Christmas Island. But um, when they will be returned and if they will be suitable for breeding is, is unknown at this stage.
0: Yeah. Right. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Now, uh, Hamish, I know you've, um, you've been uh, uh, into reptile breeding a little bit as well. Um, how does the, uh, I know, you know, you haven't been exactly in a, in as, as large of a capacity, but how's, uh, how do your, uh, breeding experiences, uh, with snakes and such, uh, at home here compared to, uh, working with, uh, like, uh, well, i I would imagine a really amazing, uh, breeding program for one of the most, uh, threatened species that there is.
1: Yeah. Um, so very, very different, um, the breeding, breeding program here is extremely different to any kind of breeding that I've done back on the mainland for several reasons. Uh, number one, the um, sort of climate here for temperature and humidity is extremely stable. So all breeding here is done in completely ambient temperatures. There is no incubators. There's none of that. Um, there is
0: some humidity uh, control given, but... But you're not putting things in, in basically modified refrigerators and maintaining temperatures and humidities within a certain boundary.
1: No, there's none of that. There's no um, you know panics in the middle of the day when we get a heat wave. There's none of that. It's <laughs> stable. So a lot of the anxiety that I went through trying to breed, especially the black-headed pythons, um, apparently isn't really an issue here, which just sounds really nice because there was, um, yeah, there's a lot of stress back on the mainland trying to breed species that aren't actually native to the area you're trying to breed them. But, yeah, luckily here they're breeding the species in an area where they're naturally occurring or were naturally occurring. So uh, basically it's, it's pretty similar in terms of uh, your mix of vermiculite and perlite um, for different species. So you're getting, essentially you're, you're breeding these animals in large outdoor enclosures. So they're, again, they're just sort of living within their own environment. The eggs are collected.
0: And you're just kind of assisting the breeding populations and making sure that they have as much success as possible.
1: Essentially, yeah. So rather than uh, just letting them sort of go at it and ending up with all sorts of weird genetic mutations possibly occurring when siblings are breeding because they're not able to leave a confined space, uh, basically, yeah, so the eggs are getting collected, uh, artificially incubated, but without any uh, sort of heat or temperature control, just in ambient temperatures. Uh, so the Lister's uh, incubation is uh, 90 days, I believe, and the Blue tail Kinks is 60 days. Uh, and at that stage, they are released into like a small enclosure. Um, and then several months later, after about one month, they're then released into larger enclosures, and then they've reached sexual maturity about one and a half years of age. And then they're released into larger, again, outdoor enclosures.
0: Right. And those are kind of the big outdoor sunning enclosures that you can see photos of online kind of with a bit of shade cloth over the kind of edges and stuff.
1: Yeah. So, so the, goal, the goal here on Christmas Island, um, at the moment, we've got about one and a half thousand blue-tailed skinks. And the goal was to reach 5,000 by 2023. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because the, um, basically the difference between breeding them here and the breeding at Taronga um, is, is quite interesting. Basically, uh, here we're getting extremely high success rates with very little uh, sort of input into the egg. Basically, we're just collecting... More effort. <laughs> sort of small amount of effort, but very high success rate. And the other interesting point is that we're getting a very even uh, sex ratio, so about 50-50 male-female. Whereas at Saronga, where they're using artificial incubation and uh, humidity control, they're getting a skewed sex rate ratio. So even though it's not officially confirmed,
0: it appears that the Blue Duskinks are temperature-dependent sex determination. Right, so sex, uh, sex determination being temperature-dependent, just like in crocodiles and in a bunch of other reptiles that we already know of, but has never been confirmed in this species?
1: Yeah, I mean it's not confirmed to the point
0: uh, where they can say it out, um, right? But yeah, they are just saying Tauranga is having a sex ratio skew, and it's probably because of temperature.
1: Probably, yeah. I mean, it's—it I mean, seems that way. You Can't say for sure, but it does seem to be that way, considering the
0: results that you know we're getting between Tauranga and here. Wow, that's um, that's absolutely fascinating, and uh. That's uh, or, I, I guess it shows uh, some of the advantages of uh, not taking island animals off their island.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, basically, yeah. There is, there is a few sort of issues like that, and especially when um, some of the considerations for the future of the species may involve uh, setting up populations on Cocos Islands. Um, certainly sort of throwing out some ideas like that that are worth considering when moving them to new locations. It's definitely worth considering.
0: Yeah, right. As to whether or not they'll still be in a suitable environment for them to have, I mean, a healthy population, sex, essentially, yeah. yeah, healthy population, sex ratios as per normal. Ah, wow, interesting. So I, I guess um, you know challenges to rewilding um, uh, that come with these animals would include protecting from those centipedes and uh, and wolf snakes and stuff like that. But
1: yeah,
0: I. I I, I, I wanted to ask about environmental challenges like, um, you know, habitat loss or, or mining or even worse, climate change. Um,
1: well, obviously, for
0: any temperature-dependent
1: uh, sex determination species, climate change is going to be an issue. Uh, I think with, um, correct me if I'm wrong, warming temperatures, or for most um, TSD species, uh, warming temperatures almost always produce more males. Is that right?
0: Oh, you, you, you've stumped me. Uh, I, I don't know that one off the top of my head.
1: I think higher temperatures <laughs> usually lead to males.
0: <laughs> right, okay.
1: Um, which is obviously an issue when you've got a disproportionate amount of males, and especially um, if you've got more females than males, it's less of an issue. Uh, but if it's more males than females, um, then, yeah, you've got a bit of a breeding issue there.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Hmm. All right, interesting stuff, guys. Um... Oh, uh, what, well, dude, we've, we've been chatting here for nearly an hour. We're pretty much going to have to wrap it up very shortly. Um, dude, I guess final thoughts-wise, uh, thoughts um, th- this is always so very interesting talking about island ecosystems, because you've got these um, small and isolated ecosystems, so evolution can kind of happen in a bottle a little bit. You're uh, reproductively isolated, so you get these cool, unique, and endemic species. But they're also adapting to such unique conditions on those islands, you know, for example, there might not be as many predators, which means you don't have to be as predator-averse, um, and then when introduced predators or, 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 some kind of, uh, change happens, basically what I'm saying is that you, you get this amazing, unique island speciation, but it comes with some kind of, you know, vulnerability to perturbations and change, um, Is that kind of the case that we're seeing?
1: Yeah, so there has been some research done um, basically looking at whether or not the reptiles are able to recognise some of the introduced species as predators. Uh, Jason's going to know a bit more than me on this one, but it is worth mentioning because the giant gecko, uh, which is native here to the island, appears to be unfazed by a lot of these introduced species, whereas the other species of gecko and skink seem to be suffering considerably to the point of extinction. So... That's certainly been a key um, key issue for research. With I don't think any hard answers have been found yet. No, there's
2: been there's been some recent stuff done um, with uh, some PhD work and. Um uh, not yet finished at the moment, but it was um I remember helping out with a few of the studies and stuff and um we were doing uh, sort of scent trials um, with the giant geckos and I've personally gone out and seen uh, giant geckos being eaten by like a large giant gecko which is which is quite a quite a large, um, quite a big species being eaten by a giant um, centipede and also being eaten by the wolf snakes as well so they're they're still being preyed upon, but yet they do have um, quite abundant numbers. In areas where these um, these pest species are also found, and the scent trials that we sort of uh, were trying to to accomplish was with um, like the wolf snake, the centipede, and the uh, the black rat as well. Um, and it seemed at the time um, the sample size was was difficult to get um, a large sample size, but we found that um, I think mostly. Uh, from my memory, uh, they only sort of reacted to the rats, and they sort of just done their normal thing around sort of centipede scent. And and um, and unless it was a, a sort of threatened wolf snake that let off its pungent smell, um, they didn't really have any sort of movement towards or from it. So, but it was a difficult study to do, especially when you when you're trying to put together something like this on the island. You need large sample sizes. You need very very um, uh, well, like lab conditions, really good lab conditions to, to perform these things as well as the sample size um, and that's a really, really difficult thing to get here, I mean, to, to go out and collect 20, 30 or 40 of of black rats and giant centipedes and uh, wolf snakes and giant geckos as well and keeping them rotated so they're, they're sort of still in their natural state without being um, starved or... Or lack of water
0: or anything like that, and still keeping a sterile environment, it just brought on quite a few issues. To give you an idea, yeah, no, I can imagine. That's a that's a that's a huge collection of animals to store together for a, for a single study as well, and especially on an on a on an island like that, it's not not necessarily <laughs> any easier.
1: To give you an idea of some of the um, sample sizes that some scientists are requesting uh, for the blue-tailed skinks, there's some upcoming research looking at. Uh, Basically, like, sort of population dynamics between centipedes, rats, uh, wolf snakes, red crabs, skinks. Um, They're wanting to do uh, sort of, like, set up enclosures with various proportions of different native and introduced species and then look at the interactions between these in a community uh, sort of basis. And they're sort of looking in the order of
0: 900 blue tail skinks for this study. Um, So... When you, when you look hey, what, whatever it takes to get to statistical significance, you got to get those p-values down. Pretty much.
1: So when you're looking at those kind of sample sizes being requested to do uh, scientific research here, I mean, we've only got 1,500, and they're asking for 900 of those <laughs> So, yeah, getting getting to the uh, sort of sample sizes that are required for some research, obviously not all, all requires that much, but for some research, it's, it's just not really an option. Um, or at least not easily accommodated for.
0: Well, look, that's always some of the issues with working with, um, with small populations, right? You know, you know, it's always going to be hard to get, you know, the right amount of samples, whether it's, you know, uh, observation counts or actual tissue data for genetic sampling. It's always going to be a challenge when you've got less of that tissue running around to um, chase down and catch. Especially when the species is already extinct in the wild, it becomes a whole lot harder. <laughs> yeah you have to you have to breathe them first so you've got enough to work with wow guys um, we've uh, we've gone over an hour here this is uh, that's uh, pretty much uh, our uh, our time uh, done for the night um, thanks so much guys for joining us this has been really awesome I wish we could uh, keep going um, uh, I'm sure uh, if uh, you guys are ever in town and uh, keen to talk about this more you're more than welcome back on the show at absolutely any time um, yeah cheers uh, much appreciated guys no worries. There's definitely more to talk about. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, and Jason, we can see you at uh, Wild Side Australia on Facebook, Twitter and more. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. And uh, you probably see my face pop up on the Parks Australia Facebook page as well every now and then
0: awesome awesome um and guys go check out swell lodge that's s-w-e-l-l-l-o-d-g-e on instagram as well and uh ham wildo to see all of hamish's instagram adventures with uh Uh, lion, fish, and sharks, and all the other fun stuff that he's doing there on the island. Um, Also, don't forget, RepX Brisbane Reptile Expo coming up on the 25th of March, 2018 uh, in the Brisbane International Convention Center at Brisbane Showgrounds at 1,700 meters squared of amazing native reptiles, invertebrates, and bird displays to come and explore. guys uh that's uh that's our show for the day uh thank you so much jason Turl and hamish for joining us uh and uh guys i hope we can talk to you again very soon uh hamish when are you back in the country my friend uh second of march i'll be back second of march and jason uh, are you staying on the island a little bit longer or are you heading back into into the mainland sometime yourself
2: uh i get off for a holiday probably once a year or so but um other than that i'll be here
0: for a bit (laughs) it's too good all right Wonderful, wonderful. Well, look, if you're ever uh, if you're ever keen to talk on Christmas Island, uh, we'd love to have you on again, guys. Um, there's uh, plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails on the way. That's our show for today. Cheers, guys. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. See you. Bye.